0: Welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. With me today is a guest that I'm I'm really excited about, Rich Cohen, who's a terrific author. Because I just said to Rich off air, I'm just like a fan. And I said to Hugo, I I really like this guy's work. And he's like, I know him. And I was like, would he come on the podcast? And he goes like, I'll ask him. And here, here you are. So Rich, thank you for coming on the podcast.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, sure. So the, the timing is good because you have a new book out, which I, which I had read and then sort of talked to Hugo about, um, about your dad called the adventures yeah. of Herbico and world's greatest negotiator. And I, I loved it. I mean, just, I just, you know, look, I am a Jewish guy from Brooklyn too, an immigrant family and all of that. So maybe it kind of resonated with me more than the average person. Um, but I, I still loved it. Um, for t- two, two first questions. One, um, what made you decide, or, uh, decide to write about your dad? And were there kind of f- family political issues that made you nervous about doing so?
1: Um, so I've always written about my dad, and when I go to like out with friends, I find myself telling stories about my dad. And I find he's got a very very strong voice that's all often in my head as I'm about to make decisions. I hear his voice in my head tell me that I'm a schmuck and that's a stupid choice. So he's constantly there, and um, I felt like. Uh, I wanted to like sort of get down to the heart of what I of of what I really the story that's sort of the primal story for me, which is his story and his lessons to me. He wrote this book, You Can Negotiate Anything, in our basement, in our unfinished basement when I was twelve, and made it this giant bestseller. And if you read it as an adult, it's really like a book of how to live and a book of philosophy. And for me, watching him and watching that book, the big thing I learned is that the people who write self-help books are the people in most need of (laughs) self-help. Exactly. And I saw Uh, him sort of in constant struggle from his ideal, which is used to always say when I was a kid, do not uh, abandon a mature design to gratify a momentary passion. That hung over my head like a commandment. Yet I constantly saw him, you know, wake up at three in the morning and eat an entire Edeman's cake and then go get a blood sugar test. And, you know, set new records for diabetes and stuff. So it was, uh, I just felt it's like the greatest story and there was a, a lot to it. And as far as family politics, yes, always family politics. And it always makes you question your choice of career every time I've written about my family.
0: <laughs> what What struck me the most is not, we'll get into your dad's career and how successful he was and everything else. But it, it just seemed like he has lived a happy life, right? Um, in the sense that, he has a philosophy of life, he embraces it, and he believes in it, enjoys it, people respond well to it. And if, if at the end of the day, the ultimate quotient is contentment or happiness, that's the thing that f- feels like he's figured out.
1: Yeah. At some of it, I don't know how much of it, you know, it's like things like going in to negotiate for a car, something he did not have to do. He had money, he did not have to be involved in, and he would take me to negotiate for a car. And I'm like, why are we going through this? And I look at him and I look in his eyes and I was, oh, my God, this is fun for him. This is like what he loves doing is going out into the world and engaging in all this kind of stuff and seeing what he can get away with and what he can get into that's sold out. And he just loves sort of people and seeing how people work and getting involved. And I think he's alive. He's 89 years old and he's lived a lot longer than any of us thought he would live. And it's simply because every day he wakes up like looking where he can engage and what he can do. And he just has a, you know, a ton of fun. And his philosophy is the secret to life is to care, but not that much. And I do think he follows that. He sort of lives his life like he's playing a game.
0: Do, do you, he knows, hey, these are the things that make me happy. These, these are the things I find fun. And then goes out and does them. It's conscious, right? Yeah. Yes. So do you think, I think most so. people, I guess, do you think most people could even answer the question accurately? Like, what is it? that you find fun and, and not necessarily like the tangible thing of like, I like axe throwing, but like w- what ultimately is, is sort of the spirit that moves all of it and how could you incorporate that more into your life? Do you think most people could even answer that
1: question? No. And i honestly, I've written a bunch of books I've been writing since I got out of college and I still don't even know for sure what my subject is or what I want to write about or what kind of <laughs> writer I am, you know? So, and it's, a and I'm always thinking like what makes, cause I always find myself, Sitting every time something big happens in my life, like my mother died, and I said to myself, I'm never doing anything I don't want to do again. And then, like, three months later, I'll be sitting through something. I'm like, I don't want to do this, you know, but I can't figure out exactly what it is that I do want to do. That's just partly probably why I'm a it that you, trying to figure is it out, it out.
0: that you don't want to do it, but you're doing it because it's in furtherance of something that you do care about, or you're, you're doing it literally while you're sitting there saying, There's no reason for me to be doing this?
1: Well, there's a whole group of things that I characterize as not things you want to do, but things that you want to have done, you know? So like, I would like to have climbed a 17,000 foot mountain. Mm -hmm. I would like to have done that. I don't think I'd actually like to do it. Right. You know, so a lot of stuff I do, I find out it's stuff that I want to later say, I have done that, you know? So What's
0: what's, what's the thing on your list that is sort of the most outlandish and yet you think the greatest percentage chance of you actually doing it sometime?
1: Um, you mean like the thing like I don't want to do but want to have done?
0: Yeah, like, yeah that, that, that I want to be able to say I did this. And of those, the one that you actually, it, at some point in your life, might actually go about doing.
1: Um, I would like to, I don't know, man. I think I would like to climb like a 17,000-foot uh, a peak. I mean, I think I would like to mountain climb. And I think that I would like to do a lot of rough traveling that I don't actually enjoy when I'm doing it. I went on a camping trip for an entire summer when I was a teenager, and we lived in a tent for two months. And at the end of it, we stayed in a motel before catching a plane back to Chicago. And when I got in that hotel, I'm like, I am never camping again. I don't know why I just did that. I'm in this hotel and it's incredible. There's air conditioner, there's TV, there's a coke machine down the hall, you know. Um, But I would like so. But I'm glad I did it. That's what I mean. I'm glad I have done it. Yeah, got it.
0: But, but ultimately, the, the, what you realize in that motel is, you know, you, you knew yourself. Like, one of the things about your dad that seems so clear in the book is he knows himself. He's comfortable in his own skin. And as a result, instead of being kind of hamstrung by just trying to figure that out all day, he's able to go out there in the world and really try to do things.
1: Right. And he, one of the things that's been great about my father, I've learned from him, is he's not somebody who worries about money or about, he makes a plan. But basically, he realizes that he's living his life now, not for what's gonna happen 10 years from now, but she understands there's no way to really know what's gonna happen 10 years from now, you know?
0: So the listeners who who haven't read the book are are probably now wondering, okay, these guys, Rich and Bradley keep talking about this amazing guy, but why was he amazing? Can you just run through the greatest hits of his career, the things he accomplished, just, just to give some context?
1: Well, he grew up in Bensonhurst, Brooklyn, with this whole group of guys in a street club gang called the Warriors and they all went off all over the country. He ended up working at night for Allstate Insurance as a claims adjuster, where he was able to take his sort of natural instinct for just street comedy and street deal-making and uh, become this great claims adjuster, and he rose kind of the top of Allstate. They hired him, they moved him to Chicago, where I grew up, and then they moved him to Sears, which owns, owned Allstate. And uh, he ended up training all these people in negotiation, And then he wound up working for all these Fortune 500 companies, negotiating their deals and also training their executives. And ultimately, when I was a kid, he quit Sears and went on his own to do this, and started working for the FBI, where he set up their um, hostage terrorist
0: uh, unit. Stop there for like, how does one go about just like, okay, (laughs) I'm going to go work for the FBI
1: right now? For some reason, my father one of his things is people believe that he knows what the hell he's talking about because he operates under the assumption that 98% of the people in the world are morons. So if you act like you know what you're doing, you're going to basically be okay. And yeah. he radiates a lot of authority when he deals. So basically he started working, giving these classes to executives first at Sears and then at all the companies Sears was affiliated with or own Sears was like Amazon then; it was the biggest store in the world. And um, ultimately he's, he just got this reputation as this great kind of teacher and negotiator, and he worked for, he got, he got brought in to solve crises. So there was a police strike in New Orleans when I was a kid, and the mayor of New Orleans was Moon Landrieu, and Mitch Landrieu is his son now. Yep, and they yep. brought my father in there to settle that strike. He worked for the NFL players and the major league umpires, sort of coming in and getting these two sides together and settling strikes. Sometimes representing one side, sometimes as a mediator, And somehow somebody in the FBI heard about this and they hired him to run a program where he was first just teaching them his rules of life and how to negotiate. And then ultimately they brought him into work at the FBI and he helped set up that terrorist hostage negotiating unit and the uh, behavioral sciences unit, which is now with he set up with this guy, Walt Sirene, and it's now famous for, you know, doing these long sort of almost novelistic studies of serial killers and stuff. But his whole philosophy is, he'd always quote this Arthur Miller play, The Price, to say, to understand the price, you have to understand the player. It's kind of, he practiced a kind of radical empathy. And you got to understand what the other side sees when they see the world. So you have to know as much as you can about the other side. And that's what he was doing. And then ultimately his name got around and he ended up working for the State Department the Justice Department for a long time, for the CIA, and when I was a kid, during the Iran hostage crisis, the Carter administration was fumbling, and they brought him in to work. They'd like, sit at that big table in you know the White House about the hostage crisis, and then after Carter left office, the Reagan people brought him in, and sort of the big thing I think to me the really exciting thing that he did then is he was worked on the START talks, which are the Strategic Arms Reduction Talks. During Reagan and Bush, the first Bush, uh, trying to limit the number of nuclear weapons in Europe.
0: So, let me dig on a couple of specific things there. So, one is um, what, what was the advice that your dad gave to Reagan specifically on the hostage crisis? Because I thought that was really interesting in the
1: book. Oh, well, his whole thing was he said, when he went into the Carter administration, he felt like he was a voice in the wilderness there. Nobody was listening to him because he said basically, You're looking at this emotionally. One of the things about my father is he said, you know, you can't negotiate for yourself because his thing is you got to care, but not that much. you got to be willing to walk away. you got to be willing to come out with an outcome you don't expect. And the Carter administration hitched everything to getting those hostages out because they became emotionally connected. And he could understand that because, you know, these are Americans and they're in a terrible situation. But actually, he felt that made it less likely to get them out because he said that the hostages at the time, he said the hostages were like 54 rugs for sale. And when you, and you're going in to buy these rugs, and when you go in and you say, I'm not leaving here without those rugs, what did you just do to the price? So he basically said his advice to Carter was sort of, you should act like this isn't that important, like it's just another item on the agenda, and go out, because Carter said he wasn't going to leave the White House until the hostages were released, to go out into the world, do your thing as president, and act like you don't care about the hostages, because that is what though,
0: we'll, When the Carter people said, well, this is the most important issue in the country. The press is asking about it nonstop. It pulls at the very top of the list. We can't look like we don't care. What would he right. have said? What did he say to that?
1: Well, I, he's not really a politician. So, I mean, I think he would have been sympathetic, but he would have seen that the, the thing is getting him out. Getting him out before the election is what you need politically. Right. So if what you're doing is gonna cause them not to be released before the election, then it might help you politically through this one single news cycle. But ultimately it's going to crush you if yep. they're not out by the election and they weren't out by the election. And his whole thing was that the Iranians screwed it up too, because they could get the highest price before the election. But once Carter lost the election, the price went way down like the concessions and everything. Right. So and tell, tell us
0: what, what he told Reagan to do and, and how it worked.
1: He told Reagan that basically you should act, see the Iranians think they know the cost. This is, They understand Carter. They know the cost. Be a variable. Act crazy. Say something a little nuts so they don't know what they're going to deal with. That will force them to do a deal with Carter. If they don't know who you are, what you are or what you're capable of, right, then they're going to be more likely not want to deal with you at all and close this deal with Carter. So that's when he came out and he, my father made this prediction about when they would be released. And he said basically seven minutes after the inauguration but it was like three minutes after the inauguration that kind of made him famous where I grew up. And then he said that to Reagan and Reagan made this public statement where they asked him what he was going to do. And he said, you don't negotiate with barbarians or something like he, and my my father said, here's this nice guy from Georgia. You know, he's very reasonable, very sane. He wants to make this, you know, nice agreement with the, with the Iranian students. And then here comes Ronald Reagan, who like, He's waving guns around. He's shooting in the air. He's like a crazy cowboy. And he said he might just blow up the whole market. Who are you going to deal with? They're going to cut that deal with Carter before he's out of office at the last possible minute.
0: So given the, you know, hey, act crazy, what did dad think of Trump, um, who either acted crazy or is crazy?
1: Uh, My father did not like Trump. I honestly did not know how he would react to Trump because he used to joke around about Trump. Trump actually gave him a blurb on his second book, I think. He kind of knew Trump and he used to joke when Trump wasn't really a serious candidate that if Trump was elected president, my father, he's going to name my father the uh, ambassador to the uh, Barbados. That was my dad's joke or Bahamas. So anyway, um, but I think that, you know, as far as acting crazy like that, you have to say that Trump did put a big uh, sort of whatever unknown or. You know, like when anybody's thinking of dealing with the United States, you have to think we don't know what Trump's going to do. There's no way. My father's first thing, he worked in game theory in University of Michigan. And if you're figuring out a game, what's Trump going to do? You don't know. But also, it's, you know, sets the other side at ill ease. But at the same time, it makes it very hard to live in the country because the citizens also don't know what the hell's going to happen. And everybody's kind of scared. You know, so it seems chaotic and crazy. So it is like you have the president, like when you said about the politics for Jimmy Carter, the president has his other role. So I would think that he would explain it. But basically, my father's philosophy, though I'm saying all this, is win-win. I believe he's a person that popularized that phrase. And his idea was, if both sides don't feel like they have won, then ultimately the deal will fall apart. He said, people support that, which they help create. So Trump worked alone without people. So when Trump like pulled out of the Iran deal, that's not going to turn out well necessarily humiliating your adversary. Isn't going to turn out well. It's it, so I would think that philosophically, he's deeply opposed to wait for the way Trump did business.
0: Um, two, two, two things in your dad's past that you didn't mention, but I found fascinating. One is, um, it seemed to me that in his service in, in, in the army, um, he was like a real life Milo Menderbender in a way, you know, the, the character from catch 22, that's sort of, you know, doing business with all sides and kind of figuring yeah. out how to make the war work for him. Um, <laughs> your dad's story is sort of similarly incredible there. Talk about what he did.
1: Well, it's a funny story because he was at a freshman at NYU and Korean war was going on and he was very scared of being drafted, uh, and ending up after, you know, in the, in Korea and getting killed. Like, so he was so worried about it, he decided that the only way to get rid of the worry is to actually go ahead and join the army and just do it. You know, he used to have this phrase, you run at the Deacon. I don't know if you ever heard that, but no. it's um, Deacon Jones is a great like, uh, linebacker for the, for the Los Angeles Rams. And he was so fast that if you handed the ball off uh, and you ran away from him, he'd catch the runner from behind and tackle him in the backfield. So the only possible way to deal with Deacon Jones is you got to run right at the Deacon. If you run right at him, you have a chance. But if you run away from him, you'll get caught. So that's kind of like what he did with the army is he ran at the deacon, He joined the army. And uh, he was stationed not in Korea. So he got lucky. He was stationed in Europe, which was the U.S. Army of Occupation, still in the aftermath of World War II. This is like 1960. And um, he had a. there was a funny thing where he, they asked if anybody knew how to speak French. And he raised his hand and said he did because he believed that would mean that he would get stationed in Paris. And that would be great. Did he, and speak French? he believed he could speak French. And I've heard him try to speak French. He got like an A in P.S. Oh, in Lafayette High School in Brooklyn in French and thought that meant he knew yeah, how to that's,
0: that's, that's pretty much the equivalent of fluency for sure.
1: <laughs> right. So he went and takes a test and he fails the test and they send him back. Now, while he was off taking the test, which is like an overnight thing, everyone's been chosen and given their assignments all over Europe. And he winds up in this place no one's ever heard of called Bot kissingen Germany, which is the Fulda Gap, which in all the war plans for World War III is where the Russians are going to drive their tanks through to start the war. It's a, val- a flat area between mountains. And um, their, their training there is all in you know guerrilla warfare because the Americans who are in the Fulda Gap are either going to be killed or behind the lines two hours into the wa- war. And they're basically there just to be killed as a kind of a tripwire to guarantee the United States doesn't sit out the war. So he ends up in this place. He's the only guy, only Jewish guy, only Northern guy, only Northeastern guy. It's all he's transferred to a unit from the deep south, and he's confused. This is a mistake, you know. He's the only guy sent there, and he goes to see the commanding officer, and he finds out that uh, he says, "This is a mistake. I trained as a clerk, typist. My classification." is clerk typist. And the guy says, your classification, son, has been changed. He said, changed to what? He said, you are now a weasel driver. So he has to drive, there's a like a half track, and he has to drive on the back with a big gun, driving back and forth I'm along the I'm sure he got, a,
0: got an A in that at Lafayette yeah. as well. They certainly teach that in Brooklyn, yeah.
1: Well, he said every day they would go out on patrol, and guys would say, today I'm gonna get a commie, I'm gonna kill a commie today. He's like, these guys are gonna start World War III. You know, ultimately they had to bring in another unit of troops from the north to sort of calm everybody down. But ultimately, he did that for a while, and then uh, because he was solving problems and being himself, they put him in charge of courts and boards on the base, which is all the sort of people arrested and brought for courts martial. He would decide who would do courts, who would you know be let free, who would be tried. It was like a position of real power from a from basically as a private in the army, and then. Uh, Ultimately, there was a three on three basketball tournament that he played in, and he took his crappy team and took it all the way to the championship and the base was so impressed by the fact that he took these not great players and beat better teams that they made him the head of the base basketball team and then he overperformed with that team and then he was put in charge of this all this team in the European League which was all the American college players and pro players who'd been drafted played in a league for entertainment and he coached a lot of guys who go on to play Division I college or go on to play in the NBA, including Luke Costello. Uh, Yeah, anyway, so, and he took them all the way to the championship, but see, he grew up with basketball. That's his game, and he was a basketball coach, and a lot of his philosophy about negotiation is connected to basketball, which is, you know, if you control the rhythm and the speed of the game, you can win the game. So a team that's not as good can actually frustrate a better team by just changing the pace on them, doing what they don't expect, being unusual and like no one else they ever played. And he always expresses this, which is the need to be different as it's better, uh, a nose that can hear is worth two that can smell. That's something he says all the time. But the idea is like, be like something no one's ever seen before and you'll actually have a chance to way overperform. And he took that basketball team and they overperformed. And he'd say, somebody, he must have, saved all the clips on the basketball season and the tournament from Stars and Stripes and he had them in a notebook. And when I was a kid, I just used to read through them for hours because it was just like a, all different existence for my father, so far removed from where we lived and what was going on.
0: So one of the things that struck me, and this may come off a little weird, but is, you know, he he got to the basketball team, the one in the European league, spent, as I recall, a, a few games really just watching the team, not really doing much coaching or anything else came to some conclusions and said, okay, the entire way that we're playing is wrong. I'm throwing out the whole thing and putting it in something else. So he, my question is this. On one hand, he clearly had the courage to go his own way and do what he thought was, was necessary regardless of the prevailing opinion. And I think we celebrate that in our society as a great kind of American quality. At the same time, you know, I, I work in the tech industry where the phrase "you know, move fast and break things" was sort of very, very prominent, and now has been discredited to a certain extent. So, if if you were asking your dad, like, okay, where's the line between you know, understanding what you're talking about, understanding the implications of it on on broader society, and reaching a conclusion and going with your gut quickly and moving on it, where do you think he would say the line is?
1: Well, I think he would say you set the goal, and if the goal is to win, you figure out what you have to do to win. And, um, he always said the most important things you need are information. So he would start by gathering information about the team, figuring out how they play, watching their opponents and figuring out how that, how they play. And one of the things he thinks that people get into trouble, big trouble with is they're not realistic about who they are and their abilities and what's going on. They sort of lie to themselves. They either cut themselves down or build themselves up. I remember in school when I was doing bad in high school, what he would do is he didn't yell at me or anything he said i want you to tell me what grades you think you're going to get and he wrote them all down on a legal pad and then at the end of the year he said okay now what grades did you get let's compare them to what you think you were going to get and i was of course way off so um what he was first teaching me is you got to be realistic with yourself to create a plan and i think he would say if you want to win if you actually want to win you have to do things that are uncomfortable And maybe, you know, out of your comfort zone and change your view of yourself and the kind of game you play. So I think the line would be ultimately, you know, what's the good for the team and not really gets getting so hung up on your personal glory or your sense of yourself. He used to tell me the story when he was at Allstate. I love this story when I was a kid where there was a guy who just didn't didn't do the job, you know. And he finally said to the guy, what is going on? And the guy said, that's just not me. Uh, it's not my style. You know, I don't like to sell people hard like that. He's like, well, I'll tell you what, you, the way you are now, you're going to get fired probably. I'm just telling you. So don't be you here at work. Be somebody else here. Be that guy or pretend to be that guy or that guy. And he'd be you at home. You know, so, and the guy didn't get fired. But the point is that, you know, I think that that, that you just have to set the goal the goal could change and things could change. But basically, you first have to start by being realistic about yourself and your team. And one of the things he did in the basketball is he had one strategy when he had bad players and then a completely different strategy when he had good players. I mean, if you have a team that isn't very fast, where are you going to try to outrun teams that are? It's just you're even if the players on your team think they're the best and they're great, they're going to get destroyed if they play that way. They have to play in a different way.
0: So one of the things, the last question about your dad, and I want to pivot to a few other things, is you mentioned that he was in a street gang called The Warriors. What you didn't mention um, is that another member of that that crew was Larry King, or I think he had a different name at the time, but became Larry King. The book has lots of great stories about the relationship between your dad and Larry King. Just tell me your favorite Larry King story.
1: Well, Larry was, when he was a kid, he was Larry Zeiger. And he always said he wanted to be a radio announcer. They called him Zeke the Geek the mouthpiece. And um, I have those pictures and he was a really geeky looking kid. And uh, when when I was a kid, Larry had this all night radio show that went on from midnight until 5 a.m. And the first hour he would have guests and then he would tell stories. And this is before I met Larry. I met him when I was around eight or maybe 10. Uh, he would tell these stories about the Warriors and about my father. And it was, you know, it was a very powerful thing for me to turn on the radio and hear this guy telling stories about your father and these stories that became kind of legendary, like stem winders that Larry told. And he told them just before he died, he told it again on the Jimmy Kimmel show, which is this famous story called the Mapo story, which you can Google and hear Larry telling and the Carvel story, which was my dad, Larry and Sandy Koufax, who also lived in that neighborhood. And this guy, they called hoo-ha, Bernie Horowitz. So, um, now, my, the thing about Larry is later on, I knew Larry very, very well. I worked for Larry. And uh, Larry, the, his favorite thing to do with my dad is they would go to baseball games like five hours before the game started, go out on the field and watch batting practice on the field. His favorite thing to do. And then they just talk baseball. And my mom, Larry kind of drove my mom nuts because when Larry was around, my dad acted like he was 12 and got into all kinds of trouble. You know that Larry and him would get into, so uh I think that the thing about Larry is just like when i s when i was when Larry was around, it was like I got to see my dad what he was like when when he was a kid, you know, because he just immediately reverted, and um anyway, so you know Larry died last year, and i it was a big thing for my father. It's like he knew him longer than he knew any anybody else in the world that's still alive. He met him when he was nine years old, so um you know. Hard yeah, pretty, when Larry uh, died, yeah.
0: But also amazing that those three guys all came from the same basic couple of blocks at the same time and all went on to do these. Yeah, you know, and there were a bunch of others. It was this things.
1: neighborhood of very successful... They used to have this Jewish community... They, they played sports at the Jewish community house in Bensonhurst, which is still there. And every year they had a Jewish community house dinner to raise money. It's mostly Russian neighborhood now. and um, And every year they'd give the Coach Gold Award out and they'd give one to a Jewish kid who'd grown up and one to an Italian kid. My father used to say uh, that the neighborhood was 49% Jewish, 49% Italian, and 2% other. So he, um, and every year, like Larry would win one year, and then on the Italian side, Vic Damone. Vic DeMone won many, many times. Joe Torre was from that neighborhood. And Frank Torre and Elliot Gould is from that neighborhood. Um, you know, it's just a crazy list of people from what was really the edge of nowhere. Bensonhurst was the last stop on the train.
0: Um, I, was, I was about to pivot to another topic, but why? So what, what do you think, either the the geography, the culture, the context post-war, what, what produced all these people who really didn't come from very much?
1: Um, they believed the American old American dream, that if they really worked and they could do whatever they wanted, they believed it. It was after World War II, United States had suddenly become the most powerful country in the world. Their parents, a lot of them had been immigrants. My father's parents were from Poland. They didn't they were uneducated people and they felt like you could have an idea, you can execute the idea, you could have everything you wanted. And they and they operated in that way. The schools were, you know, booming, every the New York was it was just a real interesting time. And then also they were in this very rich environment where they had all different kinds of people of all different ages, from all over the world, all together in these few blocks. That's where I think my father learned to negotiate, which is he had to, you had to deal with so many different people. And um, I just, and you know, America was, was booming. Those were the boom years. I mean, just the simple thing of my father buying a house for like $80,000, putting like $8,000 down and selling it 40 years later for a million dollars. And that that's what happened to that generation and that they rode the boom. But I think also that they probably because there was a boom going on, they believed the myth and because they believed that the myth was reality for them, which is they believed that America was the greatest country. And if they worked very, very hard and did everything they had to do, they could be successful. And if they took risks and took chances, they could be very successful. So it's probably something like Silicon Valley people felt in the last 20 years, but it's how that whole group of people felt. Larry had this idea that he wanted to be on the radio. I mean, it was like so simple like that. Like now you want to be on the radio. You got to go to school. Maybe you go to Syracuse. Maybe you do this. Maybe you do that. Larry heard that Miami Beach, there was no union. It was an open town for radio. So he just went down there, found the biggest station, applied for a job. They gave him a job sweeping floors in the studio. He had this incredibly great radio voice that he's born with. And uh, one day everybody knew he wanted to be on the radio. The regular guy didn't show up. They didn't have anybody. Larry was there. And the guy said, you're going on, what's your name? He said, Larry Ziger. He said, that's too Jewish. And the guy looked down at the, the racing form in front of him. There was an ad, I think for King cigarettes. And he said, you are Larry King. It happened as stupidly as that. And he went out and within a few years, he had his own show that he did from Pumpernick's, which is a deli in Miami and all the celebrities that were in town in Miami Beach then like Jackie Gleason, Frank Sinatra, they would go by Pumpernick's the night of their show and sit down and talk to this like 22-year-old kid from Brooklyn and and it was you know it was just that open and and the, uh, the audacity of it just feel, felt like that's what you could do you didn't need to go to school you just needed to do it I don't know if that answers the question. Yeah, no, to, to,
0: totally does. All right, last last two questions. One is and this is probably a whole podcast in, into itself, but your <laughs> my favorite book of yours is "The Fish That Ate the Whale." Um, uh-huh. is, I'll, I'll, I'll sum it up quickly for the for the listeners. It's this incredible story about this guy named uh, Sam Zemurray who comes over from was it Russia or a country in Eastern Europe? I forget where.
1: It was Moldova what, now.
0: Okay, it's Moldova
1: now. Um, yeah, it was Russia. Um, it, was, it was was Western Russia, Russia near Turkey. Yeah,
0: it comes from Russia. Literally with with nothing, and by kind of the his grit and spirit and hard work and brilliance, ultimately becomes sort of the fruit king of of America or yeah. the world. Right? It sounds ridiculous
1: so, when you say it. Yeah, yeah
0: but he, I mean, he literally ends up taking over United Fruit. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, but this is a so my wife is a art historian focusing on modernist Latin America, which means she knows a lot about you know what was happening in Central America, South America at that time. And so when I was reading the book, I was telling her, like, oh, this is so interesting because the stuff that you studied, and she, she didn't know who Sam Zemurray was, but as soon as I kind of explained it, she took a radically different view than the one that came across in your book, which is, this is a guy who is responsible for starving people to death, you know, killing lots of people. She, she kind of made it sound like this is like one of the worst people in history. <laughs> um, who, who's
1: right? Well... See, this is the thing. Like, even when you asked me about my father and why those people were so successful, you're aware that there's another side. People weren't included. Bad things happen to other people. The thing with Sam Zimuri was it's like you enter an existing game. So uh, because Zimuri became so successful, the sins of the whole entire country get put on him because I, I think the, 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 the answer is the truth is in the middle, as it usually is, and that. Zimuri himself understood why your wife would feel that way at the end of his life, which is why the end of his life was tragic, because he, for the first time, saw himself as other people. He knew other people would see him and what he did. But just to be fair, the company that is hated is United Fruit. Right. And United Fruit was uh, formed two generations before Zimuri out of Cape Cod in Boston. It was Boston Fruit originally. And it was a, the company that owned, ultimately, 80% of the roads in Guatemala and owned, delivered the mail in Guatemala and all these countries in Central America. Now, step by step, there's reasons why each of the things they did, they did. But Zamuri started a rival company called Coyamel Fruit, and he had a court, he hated United Fruit more than anybody and how they did business. He went to war with them, and ultimately, because of a forced merger that he didn't want, the US government forced those companies to merge. He ended up retired and the largest stockholder in United Fruit. And then he didn't like how United Fruit was being run, so he came back and took over the company. At this point, he was already old. So all the sins of United Fruit get attached to him, even though originally he didn't have any money, he didn't have any land in Guatemala. His company was in Honduras. And even for United Fruit, it's like United Fruit did a lot of bad things and did some good things. Zamuri funded the biggest free agricultural school in Central America. He put all these, he, he spent a lot of money. He left a lot of money there. He built a lot of things. And if you lived in those countries, the United Fruit job was the best job. And United Fruit schools were the best schools, if you could go to them. So it's just, uh, It's just it's just like this history that begins with the arrival of the Spanish conquistadors. And it's sort of like to sort of say, this guy enters the story as a penniless immigrant in 19 in 1890 and sort of say, we're going to put all our anger about all that history on this guy who actually was better than the people that came before him. And actually at the end realized, you know, that what was happening couldn't last and was terrible. He's just part of it. He's not, I think it's wrong to say he's, he's the villain in this story. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, totally. Last question. I, I read your Rolling Stones book and really enjoyed it. Um, your favorite either Mick Jagger or Keith Richards story?
1: Um, There's so many of them, but my favorite Mick Jagger Keith Richards story. I mean, I got to hang out a lot with Mick Jagger. So that was always wild. And I was with him once. Every now and then you get a chance to see what the world looks like. This again goes to my father, the Price and the Player, through the eyes of somebody whose experience is so different than yours that you feel like you're just like them. You're he's older than me. He's from a different country, but we're both people. We love the same music. He loves the Chicago music that I grew up with, but I was with him and his bodyguard and some just not sat down across from us and just started talking. And he looked so scared, you know, like, is this the guy that's going to kind of end my life? You know, just, just and you suddenly happens, get that. Yeah. yeah. This is like, it's like, every time you're out there, you're like a target, you know? And, um, I had the same sense once I was writing a story about a guy in the New Jersey Nets and I wandered onto the Nets floor and Michael Jordan was alone shooting free throws. And he looked at me like, "Uh Oh, you know, like (laughs) who's this guy who's just walked in here? Is this Lee Harvey over here? You know? So, um, and that's not a great story about them, but to me, one of the greatest things about them, the last thing I'll say about this is it's in that movie, the, uh, the movie about Altamont, I think the, uh, and, uh, it shows them recording at Muscle Shoals' Wild Horses. This is why Wild Horses was always my favorite stone song, because of this. And they're kind of up all night, and they put it together, and they record it. And they go back, and they haven't slept like in 15 hours. They're all drugged out. They, it just And they're staying in a crappy hotel. You have this idea that they're staying like at the Four Seasons. They're not. They're staying like at a Days Inn. In, you know. And um, they go back in, and they play back the finished song. And just the look on their faces, go back, of them listening to their own song, it's like they know that they've made something really beautiful and better than anything they've ever done before, especially Keith Richards, just the look on his face. It's like, I feel like as a writer or whatever, that's exactly your goal, is to feel that way about anything that you make.
0: Yeah. All right, Rich, there's a hundred more questions I could ask you, but Hugo's starting to make angry faces at me because we're way over time. Um, (laughs) So let me just say say to the audience a couple things. One is, Rich's books are fantastic. I I really enjoy them. In fact, my son is reading the Jewish Gangster book right now. Uh, He's 13. (laughs) Um, And uh, the Herbie Cohen book, which is about his dad, which is his newest one, is great, but a lot of them are great. And I think my favorite, as I said, is The Fish Late the Whale. So one, highly encourage uh, our listeners to uh, go buy his books and read his books. And second, uh, I always forget to do this, but Hugo reminded me, Please rate and review our podcast uh, on whatever platform you use. I keep forgetting to do that. We're now at our new studio uh, down on Orchard Street. Uh, We're excited to to be here and and hope it's the start of something. So please give us a chance. Uh, All right. Thanks. And uh, yeah, Rich, good luck.
1: Thanks a lot.